new on CuriosityStream. Have researchers figured out a mathematical formula for success? A clearer understanding of how success happens could lead us to change the rules. Gain a new perspective on getting ahead. It's science of success. And the U.S. won the space race, but not without help from the Nazis. They were just years ahead of us. Meet NASA's rocket scientists of the Third Reich on the moon landing and the Nazis. Watch now on CuriosityStream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. All right, here we go. <laughs> please subscribe to the channel please hey guys youtube's got an algorithm and it really really help us out a lot if you could like comment and subscribe this is how we can get more information out to more people and uh share the message of toronto real estate In thanks that order like comment subscribe and hit the damn bell Morning. That's it. I'm out of here. This is a new. I do not approve my privacy. What I is do not that? approve? Can you hear me? But really, we can just record through OBS, and no one will even know. No one will even know. You know who will know? know? I oh, will no. know. I will know. Mm-hmm. Because this is way easier. Like ridiculously easier. Yeah. What was um, Captain Crunch talking about with our, our mics? He says our audio sounds worse. And you know what I told him? What? Nobody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> no, I told him who gives a shit. It was, it, yeah. It's about what we're saying, not the depth and richness of our voices while saying it. I mean... Are we a year? Have we been doing this a year? Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's a year now. It's a year now. Happy anniversary. One year. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just call it then two years. We're going to have it figured it out. Figure out two years. It'll be like crisp, clean, just like all the other podcasts that I've watched and listened to. I've been doing a lot of podcasts lately, though. Like I really like podcasts. Like you've been doing uh, Uh, no listening Listening to them. Yeah. You've been invited on any. Edu uh, zero. No, me too. Edu edutainment edutainment. Yes, yeah. that's all I do is watch technically what our podcasts. I think, yeah. or or educationally edited videos that cater to my interests, which are many and 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 conform to my ideas and and opinions. Well, that's the problem. YouTube's good at that. They're really good. I mean, if I like, scroll oh, okay. down like that, long eh? enough, yeah, if I scroll down long enough, they'll get me with something. Yeah, yeah. they like but it. The, uh, there were points during the pandemic over the last year where I did feel like I ran out of YouTube videos to watch. Oh, yeah. So it's you had a to dark open up place. another door. You just had to open up a couple more doors. No, I, I took a nap, and then when I woke up, there was like a million notifications from sites that I follow, and all of a sudden, there there was more. Yeah, like I I got sucked in, right? Because I I really wanted to figure out who built the pyramids, right? So as I was watching oh. YouTube video after after YouTube video, they kept the promising me that they were going to tell me, like they kept promising new information, like there was like some newfound secret that was just like unveiled. 
Yeah. Well, and then yeah. you notice that the video was posted in 2011. And there was just no answers at the end of any of these hour long videos. And nobody but I sure as heck learned a lot about the pyramids. Yeah, but not what you wanted to learn. I'll not bet. what I wanted to learn. No. How did they get all of that stone there? It was a river that diverted river. the Nile. Yeah, they diverted the Nile. <laughs> oh, they, have ships. they have ships. They have ships buried next to the pyramids in these really? graves that are that are the ships that were that carried the stone. <laughs> You say that with such confidence that I almost believe you. It's what YouTube said. Really? Like, you know, it's like confirmed by multiple sources? Did you know? I mean, this? I watched the videos. That's all I, I have no idea if those graves with the ships in them even exist. That's just what they right. say. Yeah. This is uh this is scary. Yeah. This is this is what's wrong with the world right now. Yeah. And then there's like you some stone cutting processes where um uh, they were able to use like um, like a chemical reaction. So when the stone would would sit on top of each other, they would have like a chemical reaction that would actually make the stone eventually come to be fitted a certain way. Um, so it would be an exact fit. Um, so it'd be a rough cut, but it'd be like an exact fit afterwards. You you couldn't build those today. So, so hold on a sec. So boats with all that stone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, I mean, it, it's not right beside the water. So how'd they get it from the boats to, to, to the site? They diverted the Nile to the site. Diverted right to the site. Like right to the oh, site. Really? Is yeah. there evidence of, of this? Is there the boats? Some... There's boats Boat. buried at the foot of uh, one of the big great pyramids. Right. 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 This is. This is uh, something I have not heard of. Yeah. I mean, if you want any more information about pyramids, I mean, you could go on YouTube and, you know, you can watch some videos. You can maybe read a book in the library or go to Egypt, or you can just ask me whatever one you think is more convenient. I, I've been <laughs> down that rabbit hole before. And I, I do yeah. remember that. Uh, I don't remember anything about boats. Yeah. This must have been one of those just discovered. Maybe, maybe somebody planted a boat for a story. That's it. Maybe there is no boat. Maybe there's no boat or yeah. maybe. And it's just in a, and it's just a cover up from Egyptian, uh, tologists, Egyptologists, whatever that word is. Those no, guys. I think it's, it's tied to area 51 and aliens. And I think it's like, oh, well, geez, they're getting really close. We better throw them off by diverting the Nile and spreading it through TK. Because <laughs> that guy, that guy will believe anything. He'll believe anything. <laughs> He'll spread the word like, like uh, wildfires. Hey, I wonder if I'm missing the fact that, no, he's not. Oh, because it's two minutes early. I think. Um, Do you ever have, like, my computer clock and my phone clock are not minor in sync minor not he's two minutes late but um two minutes late conor mcgregor last night who conor mcgregor okay. okay didn't go so well for him no no he's he's a big shot right he's like the he's like not even that good he just is paid the most because he's no he's not that good but he does he does talk a good game and that's does what he win uh, that's what it takes. He he did win at one point. He had some lucky punches and he beat some people, and that's Ooh. what got him to where he is. 
because he's got so many millions of dollars, you know, eventually things start to change. Long story short, last night his shin bone snapped in half. Oh, yeah. oh there he is. Should we let that's... him in or should we punish him because he's late? No, I think we should let him in. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, probably a good idea. Too tired to punish anybody, anybody. Anyways. You've been punishing all those interns lately. It's like they're getting they're gone. They're yeah. gone. We're just we're skeleton crew here. It's much better this way. I find. Just although to... you have to ask him to Old unmute. Reliable. Old reliable staff here. Ask to unmute. Ooh, ask to unmute. There he is. There he is. I think I'm I screwed trying it up. To unmute and you're and I'm asking you to unmute. Here. Sorry. I didn't know if uh, was impatient. my assistance. Can't just wait <laughs> two seconds. This is great. Look at this. Jeremiah from Collier's is back again <laughs> for round two. Why would you do that to yourself? It's so entertaining. Last time I couldn't resist. You couldn't resist? Was it a blast? <laughs> it was a blast. It was a big there's some, there's some sort of incentive time. here, right? <laughs> yeah. Daryl, Daryl, the big uh, prize winner. We'll see. That's great. <laughs> Welcome back, though, Jeremiah. Thanks, uh, thanks for doing this again. Thank um, you for having me. Yeah, there's probably some listeners because we've got obviously this huge fan base. I mean, we're just growing exponentially, just massive, massive growth, <laughs> off the charts. And I'm sure some of them didn't listen to the last episode, so um, we could get a little intro from you if you don't mind, just to say who you are and what you do, and um, that'd be great. Yes, well, thank you for having me again, both of you. It's always a pleasure. <clears throat> I uh, work at Collier's. I lead a team there where we sell exclusively for owners, uh, development land, retail buildings, office buildings, um, and other buildings around the greater Toronto area. We also work in downtown Hamilton. And specifically, we um, specialize in the mid-market, so call it... Uh, two to $75 million in value. And specifically, uh, we look to add value, maximize the value for the owners of real estate that we work for and represent. So that's essentially what I do. Awesome. We do a lot of residential talk here, Daryl and I, right? Like we're always kind of heading down the housing market and- I Try and squeeze in development stuff, but nobody ever wants to listen to that. <laughs> well, but it always re relates to the developments like a residential development, right? Like it's going to be condos and purpose-built rentals. Like we focus a lot, a lot on that. Um, so you're a commercial guy. We want to hear what's going on. What is, what's the word on the, the commercial streets right now? Well, it's, if you want to talk about development land, it's, I would call a bright spot. Um, because in the first quarter of this year and the second quarter is turning out to be the same, but we were up 72% year over year in volume. And that was 1.8 billion in, uh, in land sales closed in the greater Toronto area. Uh, you can add about another 40 million in Hamilton, but, um, it's surprising because if you look at that, you, you start to think, well, wait a second, 72% up year over year. We were in the pandemic. Well, you know, technically the pandemic didn't start until, you know, call it March 18th, the very end of first quarter last year. So when you think about those, that sort of data in, in respect to where it's been in, in the past years, you start to think that, wait a second, maybe this is very good for the market. The market is very strong in, in uh, the land basis. And 
we believe there's probably going to be continued growth in that field. But it's important to note too that there was probably some catch up where deals had got pushed off. And, you know, we were experiencing that in our own practice. And also it's important to note that there's something called inclusionary zoning that is impending in the city of Toronto. At first we thought it was actually gonna come in place January 1st, 2022. It looks like now it's gonna be pushed off to probably September, 2022. Um, but this inclusionary zoning is laying out areas in the city of Toronto specifically, because Toronto's taken it a lot more seriously. Um, there is a provincial mandate for this as well. But, you know, for all the listeners out there, it's in, in basic terms, it's incentivizing or rather requiring every new developer to have a certain amount of affordable housing in their new developments. And in those new developments, that can be, you know, any, anywhere in the range of five to 30%, depending on the proximity to what we call MTSAs, major Toronto transit uh, 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 areas. And they, you know, they really haven't laid out exactly the specs yet. It's still kind of being worked out, especially in the city of Toronto, but um, it's going to change the market drastically. And we've just closed on a few large development pieces and the developers were telling us, you know, we're looking to build up our pipeline before this inclusionary hits because it massively changes the economics of a deal. And Daryl knows this better than anyone, but when you're looking at, call it a gross development margin on cost of 15 to 20%, call it, if you take um, of your revenue coming into the building, so you're selling say $1 in a building, and of that $1, you're taking five to 30 cents and basically taking that revenue away and accounting for affordable housing, your pro forma and the economics of the deal are drastically going to change when you have a 20% margin you're trying to hit, right? So uh, this is why the market has, has in a big way changed for people to push development land to get it done quicker and sooner before this inclusionary zoning happens because- you know, Well, the city has nobody in the planning department. Yeah, exactly. And they're extremely overworked and they're extremely busy and, you know, understaffed and, and, you know, of course, public job too, but it's really kind of changing the development land market and it's changing the way that we think land is being sold because there's this like catch up that's happening right now. Is this, but, is I mean, this downtown though? Like, is this mostly downtown or is this like, you're seeing this throughout the uh, entire city of Toronto. It's including it's Arizona. The entire city of Toronto. It's so city or GTA like Toronto. Well, it's in Ontario. It's a provincial mandate, right? So it, it will be there, but you know, municipally uh, the city of Toronto has taken a bit of a different approach, obviously being the biggest uh, metropolitan in Canada. They've and a very, you know, opinionated and specific um, planning kind of regime so they've taken on the you know the thought that well we want to get in front of this we want to move quickly on this so the city of toronto is looking to move and change the way that they lay out um, the mapping of these mtsas and the way of how 
uh, inclusionary zoning would be brought in essentially. But really what we're telling our clients and Daryl knows this is that this coupled with what's something called Toronto Green Standards version four, which is also adding about roughly 10% extra onto the hard cost, we believe is going to drastically change the economics of the land market moving forward, you know, vis-a-vis um, how these pro formas are done. So if, <laughs> if this changes as much as we think it is, uh, the land market could probably pretty much neutralize after that uh, inclusionary isn't put in place and only zoned land, which is good news for Daryl, is going to be as attractive um, to deal with the economics. And this, the only reason about this, and I say this, is because when you look at the pro forma of a development land site, there's a number of movable costs that kind of change within the market. And one of the movable costs is the land price, right? It's dependent on who owns the land, the owner of the land, what they're willing to sell it for. Now, obviously, generally, there's a market value for land, and this is what we do all day long is value land and represent landowners when we're selling land. But um, when you look at the hard costs, the construction costs, the consulting costs, the taxes that the municipality does, the taxes the province does, the federal taxes, um, you know, the consultants that are on file, these are all costs that are really not going to change drastically, right? Um, the residential brokers, when they sell all the condos to the users, um, all these sorts of costs don't really change. The only real movable change is what you can sell a condo for and what in the land is. And let's look at what you can sell a condo for. That's really market driven as well, right? If the developer decides, I want to sell these for $1,400 a foot, and the market decides, yes, we're okay with that number and they're able to sell it, then, you know, again, that's kind of setting the market. So it doesn't really change. So really brings us back to the land value and the land value is really only the one that's going to change. And even Barry Lyons, uh, a real estate consultant and Barry Lyons did a big study for the city and they laid out the exact same thing. They said, well, we believe that the only thing that can change is the land value. So if you think about it, for example, you know, uh, Mr. Butler, your car is worth $10,000 today and next year it's going to be worth $8,000 and you're still using that car and it has function to you and you don't really need to sell it. Are you going to all of a sudden turn around when you're about to sell it for 10,000 and sell it for 8,000? Probably not, right? You're going to say, well, I'll just wait till it's worth 10,000 again. I'm still using it. You know, it's not really costing me that much. And this is the exact same story that's happening with many landowners in the city. And you can create a very good analogy to, or rather a similar story to the industrial land market in 2009 to about 2015, 2016. This market pretty much sat because rates did not move. And there was this big push down on the economics of the deal so that everyone, all the landowners decided, well, we're not gonna sell because our, our, we believe our land is still worth what we thought it was worth in 2007 when the industrial land market was really good. So that market took five to really seven years to stabilize for those values to come back up 
the liquidity, the velocity in the market to move. And this is basically what we're forecasting. Obviously, we don't know the future, but what we believe will happen in the future when inclusionary zoning comes in. So it would be very difficult for land to sell because owners will have, you know, had more valuable land the day before, call it. Um, so they'll sit and they'll wait. And this may change the way well, the developers will pay because they need they need inventory because it's already so far behind. Well, this quarter, you said the first quarter was up 72 percent. What about the prices of land? So the sales were up, so that's good. But what, what were the, the yeah, the end of the end of the day sale prices? So the land values um, difficult to actually kind of put a moment in time value on unzoned land because it's all basis on what you can build. It's not like New York where you know, you know, here's my air rights, I can build 100,000 feet. You know, I base it on that. And, and Daryl, again, knows this better than most. It's, it's a bit of a guessing game. You know that, okay, based on my planner's assumption, here's the, here's the likely building is 300,000 feet. But you go in, you go in for plan, maybe you end up at 250,000 feet, right? You know, I'm exaggerating a bit here. But the point of that is that it's it's difficult to say where the land value is, but from what we've been tracking, we believe the land market is up about 8.7% this year, so far from last year in 2019. Okay. So yes, this is doing well. Good, yeah. Usually those two things will go hand in hand, volume goes up and it puts pressure on prices. So that makes sense. And just to follow up to the second quarter of this year for development land has been very good as well. But what's selling? Like, what kind of what kind of deals are you seeing? What, what what's a good deal that you've seen recently? Well, we just sold two phases of development land up on the call it Toronto East Side, about a half a million square feet of, of buildable density. Um, we did another sale in Mississauga that was almost a million square feet of density. Another one in Markham is a million square feet of density. So talking fairly large land sites Big projects. Is, are those yeah. residential or what is it this is all residential yeah so we've had wow. a very busy first and second quarter and again we've you know we have listed almost 200 million dollars of development land in the last quarter again moving forward so what's a like million it, square feet in mississauga go for per square foot about 65 zoned yeah, I'm zoned, but Mississauga zoning is a little bit different. It's not like Toronto. You essentially know the built form you're going to get, you know, roughly the height. It's really, you're kind of arguing over, arguing, working with the city over what your site plan is, how the layout is. So it's not like the city of Toronto where, you know, you come in and like, for example, the Four Seasons in Yorkville, when they went to rezone that site, people thought it was a mid-rise area. They came in lifetime Mencus and, you know, they came in and decided, well, it was actually part of the landowners before a German group. And they decided, we think this is a 40 and 44 story building. And so they went through this rezoning process that at that point in time, the city was still kind of more pliable on where they thought the direction of density went. And so there was a little more pliability and this is actually, if you've noticed this in the market too. So for example, in 2016, I sold the corner of Church and Wellesley, fairly high profile corner, a block from the subway. 
We had 17 offers on the site, um, massive range in value of like $20 million on the bids, ended up selling to essentially a, a pension fund. Um, and they went through an approval process that was very difficult. Um, and they thought there was some more pliability on it. And they just ended up losing at the LPAT this year. It took them that long. And so now the city's been much more difficult to get some, call it, you know, new areas of development, but it still is happening where you can go in and say, I think this is a high rise site, whereas the city has directed it as avenues. It just doesn't happen very often. Scarborough Junction is a very good example. Everyone thought that area was maybe a mid-rise site. And then Republic Developments came in and had this vision of, you know, we believe this is a high-rise area. It's on transit. It's its own city um, on, you know, and on its own, really, kind of own neighborhood. So, you know, now they've gone in for 5.5 million square feet of, of density. It's a whole, it's basically a new city place. So there are examples of this, but, you know, going back to your original question, it means that uh, land is harder to buy now because the market is very efficient now. Um, it's been priced to perfection is kind of the right way to say it. And it means that when you go in to buy land, you better well know and understand your planning very exactly and buy that land based on what that planning dictates and then maybe try for something in the future and there's ways to protect the landowner there so they don't get you know bogged down but there's a massive amount of risk that these developers take and landowners sometimes don't understand that nor do they have to you know it's their prerogative their land um, but it's you know that the planning in the city of Toronto has kind of taken a fine-tuned uh, change and the city is not willing to adapt to what they were willing to do in areas that were being built out, you know, say five, 10 years ago. Do you think, um, do you think we're going to see something similar to what we saw when they were abolishing the OMB and bringing in LPAT and nobody knew what the heck was, you know, what LPAT was going to be and how it was going to work and how long it was going to take. And, you know, we had all these experts with their opinions and like long seminars yet to stomach and like you could nobody really knew what did you watch that thing i, I actually watched that thing I, I thought i had it pretty figured out actually but most people didn't have a clue and most experts didn't have a clue i probably didn't have a clue either i think i had a clue but like do you think we're gonna see something like that like wasn't there kind of like a push to to grab some land before things change and get those applications in before the omb kind of disappeared you're absolutely right the exact same thing happened in not as a big way because, you know, a lot of people don't want to go to LPAT. They don't want to fight because it, it typically means, well, it used to typically mean about a year of extra time, and about half a million dollars of extra cost. Now we're finding that it could mean as much as like three years. Like they're booking out LPAT hearings right now. What I've heard is 16 months out. Yeah. Um, so Crazy. for... I'll, I'll give you a really good example because it's finished done. I can talk about it now. We sold the site on Jarvis to Center Court, uh, just south of Girard. Mm. And Center Court bought this site basically thinking that this is probably a 20-story site at best 
We believe there is a planning technicality to, to make it a high-rise site. We believe that, you know, they've dictated this in the official plan as a high-rise site. Uh, so they went forward with that basis. They had a very complex LPAT hearing. Um, they hired, you know, isn't, a park, isn't a park there the problem? Like shadowing yeah. that park? That's right. Allen Gardens. So they yeah. actually, yeah, they hired, um, you know, planning scientists and, or sorry, plant scientists. And to look at, you know, the shadowing in December, it was a very minimal. And they were able to look at this very complex planning and actual external argument, you know, on the basis that we believe this could be high rise right so but that just got approved um at the start of this year i think because they gave them a partial approval and then they went back and got another approval and we sold that site it closed in 2017 yeah so they just got the approval they're just and center core is very quick with their construction so they're they've gone under construction this month and they did their sales um i think they started in april i believe around 1450 a foot, I think, but yeah, they sold yeah, like that. seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's an example of what you have to expect. Now the LPAT takes forever. So Lifetimes. no one wants to go to the LPAT. Yeah. So yeah. back to your point is that when that change happened from OMB to the LPAT, there was a lot of people that thought, you know what, we're just going to buy these sites based on good planning today and based on what we believe we can do today, which is how a lot of it happened. But now with inclusionary zoning, if you're within an area where it's gonna be directed on this inclusionary zoning, you know, there's really no arguing around it. You're gonna have affordable housing and that affordable housing will have to stay affordable for 99 years. It's not like the old rules, rules of affordable where say if you had over six rental units and you wanted to do a development, those six units would have to be replaced and they could be replaced for roughly about 20 years. They had to be affordable. If the original person moved out after 10 years, you could go back to market rates after 10 years. You know, so it wasn't as horrible on the economics of the deal. And the banks financing these developments were okay with you know, working through more favorable terms. But now with this, this is affordable for 99 years. There's no getting out of it. So it's a drag on the pro forma. Typically will cost the developer a little bit of money to build these affordable units. So again, they have to make up for it. It's just arithmetic. So, so you were mentioning about industrial though. So the industrial um, market from 2007 to 2015 went through those changes and all these landowners, it wasn't enough to, mo there was no motivation for them to sell, right? Do you think inclusionary zoning, these changes, is this going to really motivate the old school landlords to want to sell any sooner? Or this is just like a, well, hey, whatever, <laughs> I'll let you know when I'm ready. Any sooner, yes. I mean, we're, as I mentioned, you know, we're up 72% uh, in Q1. Now we're roughly in the 60s, Q2. You know, the market is, you know, taking on massive amounts of volume because everyone's thinking, well, you know, condos are still selling, the velocity is still good. So developers still need to build because there's still a lot of people moving in. Canada has forecasted the highest amount of immigration possible in the next four years once they open up the borders. And so developers still need to buy land to build buildings. I mean, effectively developers are in a service industry. All they're doing is providing a service of housing for people. And so is that changing right now? Yeah, the volume is up massively, but 
you know, similar to what happened on the industrial market, when the global financial crisis happened, there was a massive degradation of really, I guess, um, you know, kind of faith in, in consumer companies and really companies all over the place. So everyone thought the world was ending at the time in 2007. So the market stopped in 2008, 2009, and the industrial land market, which is very dependent on business and, you know, consumer businesses and distribution, you know, companies based companies, warehousing. So at the time they, you know, there's a bull market before in 2007, before the crash happened, when things kind of slowed down, because it, it generally the real estate market is 12 to 18 months slower than say kind of the stock market. Um, you saw this kind of slowdown and all the landowners that were at one point getting at the time, I think it was 600,000 to 800,000 an acre. And, um, you know, the, all the buyers, the developers, the pension funds who buy the sorts of industrial real estate. said, well, we're not really willing to pay that per acre because the tenants are not willing to pay the rates that we want. And so you had this weird cat and mouse game for years until really 2016, 2017, where the rates were not enough to justify the land value. And the rates in Toronto for industrial real estate stayed so stagnant for so long. <laughs> it's so typical Canadian, everyone's so conservative. And then 2018, people started pushing their rates and realizing, wait a second, there's no product in the market we can push rates. And so landlords started pushing rates in 2018 and the market has gone up like 20% year over year in industrial now. And the market is just on fire with industrial. So people can't get enough of it. The rates have yeah. gone from essentially $6 a foot in 2016 to like 12 now. <laughs> so is, is that mainly because of the need for logistics space or is that a lot of people buying these warehouses and turning them into retail and you know, getting an extra 10, 15 bucks a foot on the rent. No, it's all industrial based. So warehousing distributions, logistics, 3PL, um, companies who need to take space. Um, to your point, it's been the opposite. You know, brick and mortar retail has obviously taken a massive hit. People are buying online. We've had more growth in e-commerce in the pandemic than we did in the previous, I think, five or seven years. Wow. So you have this growth of like 25% of online sales happening. Where is all that growth have to be supported by? It has to be supported by industrial real estate. So industrial real estate is the backbone of online sales. Not only that Toronto has a very, you know, um, you know, conservative way of allowing industrial land to be built. So again, it's very similar to the residential market. There wasn't enough land. And so all of a sudden people started pushing rates all of a sudden, you know, in typical conservative Canadian developer fashion, Oh, they're doing it. We can do it. So everyone starts pushing rates and it becomes this snowball effect. And in 2019, it just took off 2020, it, you know, it was muted for a second and then it's kept going this year. And it's been probably the hottest market, not only here in Toronto and the GTA as the third largest industrial market in North America, but across the world, you see, you know, massive private equity groups like Blackstone gobbling up monster portfolios 
everything is priced to perfection, you know, sub four cap rates, sub three cap rates um, going in yields um, because the rates are moving so quickly. So what happened in residential land is now happening in industrial land. Yeah, I've heard business owners talk about that. Their landlords are basically doubling their rents. One guy, 30 years, he's been there. And his landlord's like, at the end of the year, the rent is double. And so he's like, okay, it's time to retire. He's moving on. And I know I have a family member who sold an industrial building. um, Crazy amount of money, right? Again, a a business forced into uh, retirement because of COVID. And uh, that market, uh, yeah. You never really hear that, right? The industrial market's booming, right? Not in my not in my lifespan, <laughs> and it's uh, like not 2007. I wasn't really paying attention to that stuff, but uh, definitely hot market. Are we are we seeing more um, height or multiple stories in, in new warehouses that are being built these days, or are they still just gigantic one-story sprawled-out Mississauga-style buildings? Well. I mean, they are still what you assuming so with Mississauga. And of course, you probably know the word Orlando, Orlando Corp being the largest industrial owner of real estate in that area. Um, but yes, they are starting to look at multi-tiers. Um, I actually don't sell industrial real estate. We have a very good industrial team. And so I specifically haven't seen any multi stage industrial, but I believe the first one is happening in Vancouver. Um, This is very common in Japan where they don't have very much land. I know industrial has been multi-story there for a while, but at this point, I don't think the economics make sense yet to do multi-story industrial, but I'm sure it's in the cards in the future. Have you guys seen the the Amazon, like the new Amazon distribution centers and all that kind of stuff. Like those things just crazy. the one in Ajax. It's like, it's like so crazy looking at it. It's the robots uh, inside are insane. Have you seen inside these I, things? I, I've only seen a little bit online. Right. But it's, it's uh, nuts. Yeah, just massive, nuts. massive, massive space. So I'm going to, sh- I'm going to shift the conversation for a sec. Cause there was big Uh-oh. news that came out this week in real estate, uh, especially kind of on our end of things. Uh, do you know what I'm going to bring up? think so yeah jewish family yes <laughs> yeah so the libfelds the conservatory group are uh selling off the the entire business what what what's going on from what have you heard about that like is it, it does colliers get some of that land to sell some of those deals what what happens well, I, I can't really comment on it right now, um, oh. but it looks like from the Toronto Star article that, you know, the conservatory group that they have some family members who want to go their separate ways or maybe have yeah. some agreements. Um, they have built up a massive portfolio of land. Massive. And so I think it, it's going to be, you know, what we usually call these are divorce of a partnership, really, but this is a family based partnership. So um, we've done a number of these uh, over the years. Um, and I think that, you know, these may continue to happen because unfortunately you have families that have grown in size. They have multiple kids and cousins and, you know, they all keep these family businesses in check. But uh, when the portfolio gets so large, I'm sure that there starts to be, you know, differing views on, you know, you can go one way or another way. And I know, you know, there was another high profile developer family a few years ago had the same thing in the news. 
And I, I really think that it's because over the last 30 years, if you've been, you know, a fairly substantial development or investment based private family, um, over the last 30 years, you've made massive amounts of wealth and you've probably expanded in large ways your portfolio. So if there was not infrastructure in place and rules in place, then, you know, maybe there are next generations that are just looking to do something different. So um, I think that, you know, it might happen more and more. Hopefully it doesn't happen in the public eye, but uh, you know, we've been in a 20 year bull market really. Um, and you can call it a 30 year run, um, but uh, maybe not quite 30 years. I think 94, 95 is when the market started coming back. But since 2000, the market's been fairly consistent, a few psychological dips, but um, a few slowdowns. But when you think about it, Toronto has been very consistent. And that's why people have been calling for a crash for many years because it doesn't seem sustainable. The fundamentals are never the problem in, in Toronto, right? It's always some outside thing that destroys whatever's going on here for a little bit. Yeah. It's nothing. Pay attention to fundamentals. Well, but the, the fundamentals here are always so ridiculously strong because we're so far behind on everything that like, it's never the fundamentals. It's, you know, Wall Street decides to, you know, lever up the entire nation you know 98 percent right even maybe more it was probably more like there's a lot of blind shorts going on with the with the real estate market it was probably oversold 140 percent over there right so like you know and now it's a pandemic i mean it has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the market here right i mean obviously those are impacts on fundamentals but it's not the actual market you can't kill this thing they keep trying and then it just keeps running away. Carol, it's a very good point. I always personally like to say the analogy that we have this golden hen that's being fed golden feed. And the golden hen is um, immigration and the golden feed is low interest rates. And when you have those two aspects of the market staying consistent, low interest rates and immigration coming in. Um, and then you really have a constrained geographical area in which you can build. Not much is going to change, I don't think, until those people stop moving. And when yeah. you look at the historical events of, say, a Manhattan, you know, that grew at incredible periods um, since really. Um, I believe it was 1908. Um, I was looking at some data earlier and Manhattan grew at roughly 72,000 people per year until the seventies. So if you, if you have kind of the similar veil and thought that Toronto is going to go through. And when you look at Toronto, it's actually quite similar to the geographical area um, of the New York tri-state area, not Manhattan per se. Um, well, you start to think that this may continue to move on. Um, yeah. The one difference I would say is that Canadians are so conservative, you'll get these blowups, these extreme hotening of the market, and everyone holds back because everyone starts to think, oh, things could be overheated. You know, a prime example is 2013. I remember one of the largest developers in the city was talking to me and telling 
telling me that we're not going to buy land over $60 a buildable square foot. That includes downtown land. And they had bought a very large site, uh, one of the largest at the time, downtown Toronto at roughly, I think it was $65 a foot. And they made this proclamation, obviously being quite wrong. But from 2013, late 2013, um, after the launch of, uh, it was Centre Court and Lifetime's development on Temperance, which they sold quite well at the time, which you'll laugh was around $650 a foot. Um, They, you know, the market kind of dampened a little bit. What did they pay for the land? Well, they paid... uh, I think it was $45 a foot or so. Billable. $45 for the, for, for the land, and they sold for $650. I, I think so. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. It's been a while. Wow. But yeah, it was the but market. Yeah, those were the metrics back then. But the construction costs, instead of $350, were like $150. Yeah, yeah around $170. Yeah, so that... So that from that time period in January 2013 or so when they finished that launch there was a few other launches they didn't go that well because all the buyers thought something's going wrong here because they were scared from you know the global financial crisis not that long ago so then the markets stayed fairly neutral I believe the appreciation was around two to four percent very slow and and then the end of 2015 happened there was a few very good launches uh, myself, I remember buying something at 700 bucks a foot and thinking it seems a little overpriced, but I like the area. And, um, then you had 2016 and then the market took off and then you had 2017 is the highest point in the market. 36,000 condos sold that year <laughs> and the market continued to go. So you have these points in times where it seems the Canadian conservative comes into play thinking, oh, wait a second. Are we overbuying? We need to be careful. So the market almost recorrects itself, takes a little break, takes a breather, and seems to continue going. But again, that golden goose, golden goose and the golden feed, if that doesn't change, I don't see the market changing drastically. I think during that time period, though, that you're describing, it wasn't even so much that they had looked around and gone, holy crap, this is crazy. Let's slow down a bit. First, they went, you know what? We can't afford houses right now. Let's go bananas into condos, right? And then everything shifted into condos, and then the housing market kind of slowed down. Like, new housing went to shit completely, right? I don't know what the resale market did, but it was probably slower, if I remember correctly. And then... What, what happened after is everybody went crazy with condos and then they all looked around and said, hold on a sec. Uh, the housing market, it, the prices are lower down there now. Let's all go crazy back down into single family houses and townhouses, right? And then that's what, and now everybody's just kind of crazy about everything. And it <laughs> feels like in the yeah. last week or two, everybody just looked around and said, um, where do we put our money right now? Let's go shopping. Let's go for dinner and spend crazy amounts of money on dinner, like as much as we can, because maybe they're going to lock us down again soon. One, one thing that's being talked about a lot right now is um, like material costs are going down, right? Like things are starting to settle down. There's, you know, there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel that all these construction costs may not end up staying as high as they've uh, been over the last year. Is that something that builders and developers are noticing? Are they uh, forecasting it's going to go lower? 
are they factoring in any extra costs? Like what, what are they going to do in order to be able to build and, and understand what that cost is going to be three, five years down the road? What's that perspective? Yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them did what Jeremiah is talking about in the market with, with purchase prices. A lot of them just said, we're not fucking paying this. We're going to wait. Right. And allow, like allow supply so like to come up. Maybe confidence is coming back in getting things built at better prices. The general consensus I'm hearing is that uh, hard costs are coming, going to come down and there will be a bit of a softening in the market, especially the lumber market. What I had heard is that uh, there was a number of um, employees that weren't actually working in the, the mill yards and the, the wood, wood industry or lumber industry rather. So they had a shortage of um, labor and it was difficult to actually get the product out. What about um, like even concrete though? Like even things that are not like, uh, you know, like the typical commodities and stuff like that. Like everything has just been through the roof. Right. Rubber. I can only imagine yeah, how much well, a developer metal, pays in concrete to build a condo building, right? Like steel has always been a difficult one, but the forming contracts have been fairly consistently moving upwards over the years. I don't think that's going to change drastically. I think that there will just be a bit of a neutralizing in the market from what I've been hearing from clients. The the bigger thing though to note is that in Toronto specifically next year, May 1st, 2022 Toronto green standards version four, that will add on roughly 10% cost. Uh, well, three to 10%, depending on the size of your building and the type of build out onto your hard costs. So there is going to be a reverse push there. We don't see hard costs changing drastically in the next really 12, 12 months. What's, what's caused the most amount of failed uh, condo projects? Like we've seen a few, we've been talking about a few. There's been some condo projects that either pre-sold a little bit or, 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 or none at all. And they've all been maybe coming up for sale or there's been cancellations. Is it just construction costs or is, or is there other things going on? Mostly construction costs and planning delays. Selling too early, selling too early, launching too early. Yeah, People used to launch so that they could get their funding quicker, right? And lock in that rate, right? And get going and just spin the money quicker. But uh, it turned out that that was a bad idea, right? It's only a bad idea when costs are escalating the way that they've been escalating, right? That, did, that wasn't normal. Scale prices has to outpace costs. That's what it is, right? Timing, though, you're doing like, the planning as long as the condo price that you're selling for keeps going up you're kind of like okay this is this is going to work out but uh, it, the, the 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 price of money was going down the cost of materials was going up and if you had fixed your sale price too early mm-hmm. you your margin disappeared like drastically right yeah. or or exactly. the you had a call the plug you just say yeah. yeah this was a very common theme say kind of pre-2017 it kind of got phased out because of a number of these cancellations so developers have smartened up lenders who are doing the construction loans have smartened up mostly uh i i'm trying to think of even one project not many builders developers are now selling before they have their finalized zoning and 
once they are selling, it's you know when they have finalized zoning so they can prepare to go to construction financing. That's what I always thought. I always thought you'd have to like, you know, you should have your zoning, like you should have things in place, but I've heard of, and this is not my, my area of expertise, but yeah, I've heard of a lot of sites that they're selling before they have zoning. And that's concerning. If I was a buyer buying a condo, I wouldn't touch that. Yeah. And that's, it's changed fairly drastically. And now you'll see new condo marketing, you know, banners as fully approved, you know, uh, ready to go to construction. This is part of the marketing Buyers are becoming more sophisticated. Again, as our market is maturing, everyone forgets that, you know, pre-2005, condos were really not the norm. And as Daryl mentioned, uh, the condo market really started to take off in 2013, 2012. Um, Even though it had been there for a while, as a true form of housing, you know, it took some time for the market to recognize that this is something that can actually be very viable to live in. I don't have to live in a house with a yard because traditionally you had, in order to meet the need of the immigration coming into the city of Toronto, you needed about 40,000 housing units and that would be split by um, low rise housing. So what we call ground related housing, like houses, townhouses, stacked townhouses, single family homes, semis, and high-rise based product, which is really call it six stories, eight stories and above, anything that is a multi-story product. And in 2017, that shift of 40,000 units went from the highest it's ever been for condos at roughly, I think it was roughly 36,000 condos sold and the lowest it's ever been since I think the 70s for low rise housing at 7,000 units sold. So as Daryl mentioned, it was very true. At that point in time, there's a very negative viewpoint of single family ground related housing. People thought the market had gone way too hot. It was way too expensive and everyone was rushing in to get condos. Obviously that market almost reversed. You saw in 2020, all of a sudden people realized I wanna be in ground related housing. So that market changed, the psychology changed, and condos actually took a little bit of a hit until June of 2020, when there was a few very good launches on Eastern, on Queensway, um, another one up in Thornhill. The one and, you were talking about before. Yeah, exactly. So it, you know, they kind of things kind of changed a little bit, and people are still a little uneasy on the condo prices. I think that they're careful, but the data has shown the market is still very much there. As far as the ground related stuff, what I'm hearing, for example, I think Minto launched 2000 units. They had, I, I wanna say it was like 10 times the amount of registrants as the number of homes they had. Yeah, for sure. It was almost insane. It's insane. You, think about it. you know what? I keep thinking to myself, like the, the, the marketing agents for, for condos are so brilliant, especially here in Toronto. It, it, they really like, I, you never talk about a house as a price per square foot. We need to stop talking about condos as a price per square foot when you're buying it. It just has to be the price, right? Because cost per square foot is, is baloney. I, I can show you a much better 595 square foot unit than something that's 675 square feet, more functional, better layout, like better to live in. You know what I mean? Like the price per square foot 
it's a metric, I guess, because everybody's investors that are buying, right? But like, we have to get away from this thing because, I mean, if it's if if the price is right and the unit is good, that's all that really should matter. It's not like people get turned off when it's like, oh my god, now the price is twelve fifty a square foot, and oh my god, it's fourteen hundred a square foot. They're all five ninety nine though, right? You're not wrong. I just think, like you said, the majority of the condo market has has been investors buying condos in order to rent them out because our rental market for developers has been the lowest you know, on record, which I guess I should say, conversely, it's the highest it's ever been this year for actual call it purpose-built rental buildings being built. But people look at those metrics because they're investing into it and they want to compare it to the other things in the market, the other buildings in the market. So I don't think that'll change drastically. It's just been traditionally the way the market has gone. And with a house, you have a yard, you actually have actual land so you have to bring in place a number of different factors, which typically mm-hmm. what we talk about is a, a dollar per front foot, you know, the depth of the lot, um, number of bedrooms, you know, layouts, basement, basement built out. There's a number of things that go into it. So it's not the same. resale condos though. That's how they're sold, right, Daryl? Nobody in a resale condominium is ever going to say it's, it's this price per square foot. It's like a secondary measure right, to kind of just why. look into to kind of go, okay, maybe because you're going there, you're looking at the unit. Do I like it? Do I not like it? That's what I'm going to pay. That's it. You know, very few people are going to look at price per square foot first. I, think I, I would say that's the opposite though. I, I hear lots on of resale and resale. It's ignorance. Price no, to me, to me, it's ignorance when they go there because they, it just makes them feel good. They think, Oh, I'm paying this price per square foot. They're comparing it to pre-construction. But when a, a buyer and end user walks into a, a unit and they fall in love, the last thing they're thinking about is price per square foot. They're looking at comparable sales that when they're sold for 800, okay, I'll pay 800. That's fine. And the square footage is close it's not going to just want to know how much more they're paying than they should that's all we care about when we're buying stuff right how much more did i just pay for this than i should have and can i justify it yeah i haven't heard of daryl rant in a while so i think this this is the cue right now because i didn't (laughs) buy anything with you lately (laughs) (laughs) so we're coming up we got about you know eight minutes or so left in the show um you know, what are the trends? Where, where are things going in your space with everything else? So land right now you're saying is hot, but you feel like that's going to be something that's going to be changing. Developers are building still. They're still confident, but uh, do you think there's going to be more developers looking to do purpose-built rentals, more condos in the future? Where are things going? Yes. Uh, we've sold a number of sites for co-living builders who actually can be more competitive on a land price basis. I think that is going to be the next trend. If you're talking about what's new in the market, there are many more people looking at rental than ever in my career anyways. And because the rents have continued to move, there's a bottom point in, I think it was um, in the fall of 2020, rather for rents, condo rents, but you know, the market has continued to move up and it's really tracked back most of uh the loss that was done during the pandemic it's made up for. So I think the rental market, you'll start to see purpose-built rental happen more and more. I think the consumer is getting smarter. They're starting to realize, wait a second, I can live in a building that's professionally managed by either a pension fund or a private investor. That is a rental building. I never have the risk of being 
having to move out from some, you know, random private investor saying that I don't, you know, I, I need to sell this condo. You're probably going to have to move. No, my niece, my niece needs the unit. <laughs> my niece is going to move in. No, no, they don't even I'm say that. They say, more. they say, they say, I want to sell it. it. Yeah, they say I want to sell it, and I want you gone in thirty days. And then they they complain when it doesn't happen. Trust me, landlords are so clueless. I think I'm gonna move into it myself. I'm thinking I want to live in a one bedroom myself. From I know it happened to my sister, and I told her, "Listen, you have rights to stay here unless they can prove." But a lot of the time on a resale condo, it seems to be end users who are actually going to move into it. So they they have to give them sixty days notice, right? On a sale, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or 90 or 60 days. But I think those the two trends are co-living is going to happen more in downtown areas. Really? Uh, mid-rise uh, walk-ups are starting to be more common. So similar to Manhattan, you have buildings being built on small little corners. We sold the corner of Niagara and Queen Street West. A 40-unit building is being built there. No parking, walk-up rental, uh, very similar to Manhattan in a sense. Uh, this is going to be a lot more of the kind of product people want to see because these are going to be beautiful, very livable units, close to good areas. Uh, co-living is just going to be more affordable type product, still in good areas. It's almost similar to kind of student residence, but managed more professionally. It's very common in Europe. How many uh, people do I have to share my kitchen with? That's a good question. How much you want to pay? I think it's roughly two to four people. It depends on kind of the product, but there is a German investor who's been building this stuff. That's who's it. Been quite good at it, and yeah, it's it's, it's something that's very concepts. attractive. Yeah, it, it's it, not it, the whole some floor. It's not like 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 uh, when you're in university. Yeah, it's not like that. No, it's not like a big castle in the middle. Perfectly managed buildings. So I think they're actually going to be very good alternatives to what's out there in the market i mean traditionally there's only been rooming houses in toronto that have really been co-living other than actual residences so i think those are the two big trends what we're seeing is a massive shift into investment product too we sell a lot of retail plazas retail buildings and office buildings office is taking a hit it's really one of the asset classes next to hotel that has not been good this year. It was down 16%. Although we've sold uh, all these boutique office buildings lately, we believe it's a shift because people, tenants and users want to get out of the high, you know, the larger office buildings and get into their own office space where they don't have to be around people in elevators and the risk there. But retail plazas that are in good areas on pieces of land that could be used for future development those are very, very hot right now. That market was up 43% year over year. Were the prices months. up or just the volume, like the amount of sales? The volume was up. The price was fairly neutral. Right. Um, okay. In fact, some of the uh, cap rates had actually gone up about 25 basis points in certain areas, but they've trended downwards again now. We just sold a Bank of Montreal site. It had 14 years remaining of term. And it was a sub four cap rate. So there are still aggressive pricing being sold. But I think mostly people are starting to say, well, we are looking for yield. We want something that is a cash flowing asset. And it's a whole nother market outside of, I know we talk a lot about development land and residential development land. 
but people are looking to find yield. And that's why the multifamily market is uh, at all time highs as well. But retail is actually closely behind, close behind. What kind of there yields are we looking for? What are we happy with right now? Sorry. It depends where you are. I talk to Jeremiah all day. It, it depends where you are. It depends on the, you know, I guess I'd say there's really three factors. The covenant of the tenant, the length of term, what we call the WALT, the weighted average lease term remaining if it's multi-tenant. And the location, what the kind of the ground related value of the land is. So, if you look at those different yields, they come together to make this really equation of, of what is valuable. But to give you a good example, in downtown real estate, if you have urban real estate on good areas with a AAA covenant, something that is multinational tenant, um, that is essential, um, that would potentially be open during the lockdown. So say it's Shoppers Drug Mart, Rexall, LCBO, uh, bank are still considered good, but they're a little more careful because the banks have been closing uh, their uh, some of their branches. But you know these type of things will be anywhere from a three and a half percent cap rate to a four and a quarter cap rate. So pretty aggressive yields considering where they are. And then you have retail plazas out in the suburbs, if they have good covenants as well, you'll see everything from around a four to 5% yield. And if you're looking at street front retail, it's kind of a bit of a different beast. That market has been very low liquidity. That's probably the hardest hit, especially in the urban areas. People are not sure what's happening there yet. Um, we're seeing, uh, I guess, roughly four to four, four to five, percent cap rates depending on the area but you know people are searching for yield they want income coming in and they're looking for it in different forms of assets and we have a number of smart investors who are actually investing in office real estate because they believe if you have lower i guess lower forms of like one to two walk-ups or four stories or six stories type office buildings where they're not massive towers, anything over under 100,000 feet, you still have some certain investors taking a position there because they can get yields as high as six and a half percent rate in some areas. So we've sold a number of office buildings in the last little while. We actually sold a 50,000 square foot office building in downtown Mississauga in the middle of the pandemic. And a private investor said, I'm gonna be here for 15 years. I like this location, I like the building. I can manage it better. I can get some more efficiencies out of the income and I'm buying it at just sub 6% cap rate and I'll be able to push that to a six yield. And so on a levered basis, that's gonna be close to a 20% levered IRR. So um, it depends on where you are, but we think boutique office sub 100,000 square foot office is kind of the quiet in the shadows contrarian investment play right now because the yields are good. And if you look at tendencies like engineers, um, uh, teachers unions, community-based groups, uh, there are still a number of tenants that will always continue to use office. And I think that that is what I would call the contrarian play right now is to get in and find good location office with yield. 
Beauty. Insider tip. Love it. Love it. Thank Jeremiah, you, you are by, by far an expert. Um, I know that a lot of the listeners appreciate all the things you said. There's a lot of like, you talk about stuff at a really high level, you know, you can tell We're that there's a lot of stuff there. Yes. Right. So you're really good, but um, you know, we appreciate, I'm hoping that you can be a regular guest on the show and um, maybe you can give like a little shameless plug. Like where can people follow you? And, or a shameless plug. Ooh, there you go. Play on words. <laughs> I know they think I'm Irish and my last name is actually Middle Eastern. I thought um, you were. Uh, where can uh, people find you? Amish. <laughs> Jeremiah Shamus. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Daryl. People can find me on Twitter at jshamus, uh, on Instagram at jshamus. We post some interesting things there um, on the website, colliercanada.com, LinkedIn, Jeremiah Shamus. And then I put my email here at the bottom as well. If anyone wants to get a hold of me, um, very easy to get a hold of. And someone on my team or myself will get back to you as quickly as possible. But we represent owners. We sell buildings. We sell land. And we advise them on what to do, whether it's the sell or hold or how to position their real estate. Ultimately, Daryl knows this. We want to maximize the value of your commercial real estate. And that's really what we're looking to do. So I do appreciate the time today to talk about the market. I love talking about the market. It's what I do all day long. And I love studying the market. And I think you would both say that the Toronto real estate market is one of the most interesting ones in the world. Okay. And I think we'll continue to sit in awe and, and be maybe confused at times, maybe interested at times, but uh, ultimately students of the market. Absolutely. You could it. have a whole podcast about it. You could. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks a lot, Jeremiah. New on Curiosity Stream, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Kim Kardashian. Tycoons are in many ways the lifeblood of society. They are willing to put everything out there. They're willing to lose everything. See how the super elite use their money and power to shape our lives on Tycoons. Plus, from Japan's unbreakable super code to the algorithm mining your Bitcoin, we're breaking down the world's most famous encryptions on cracking the code. Watch now on Curiosity Stream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com.